I will be reading from Exodus 16, verses 2 through 21. It says selected versions because by the, when the bulletin information was needed, I hadn't quite decided where I'd end. Um, so it will be Exodus 16, 2 through 21. I just want to say this is a story of where the Israelites have been liberated from slavery From Pharaoh in Egypt, they now find themselves in the wilderness, and they're wondering how they're going to feed themselves. Where is the food coming from? How does this, how will they survive? And they're getting pretty worried about it, and they start murmuring and complaining. Just an interesting note, when the manna and quail come, people say, um, in the commentaries I was reading and everything looking at, just an interesting note that they, they it contribute manna often to insects that puncture the fruit of the tamarisk tree and secrete um, white substance that are kind of like round balls and full of carbohydrates, and that still happens today. Interesting fact. And that when quails are migrating from Africa and sometimes the Mediterranean, they're blown into or land on the Sinai Peninsula so tired that people can actually catch them by hand. So just a little facts for the curious. Exodus 16. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instructions or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see that the glory of the Lord, because God has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, Because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against God, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, Draw near to the Lord, for God has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked towards the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat the meat, in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness, was a fine flaky substance, as fine as the frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. 
This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs in Omer, or about two quarts, to a person according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tent. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing over, and those who gathered little had no storage. They gather as much as each of them needed. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it as much as each needed. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. The word of the Lord. Have you ever witnessed a toddler, a young child who has friends arrive to play, and when those little friends start encroaching on his or her toys, there's no gender bias here, He or she grabs hold of those toys and refuses to share them, sometimes grabbing many more than he or she can play with. Can't you see it, that small child clutching those toys, too many toys, say matchbox cars or those little Thomas trains, in his own arms crying out, mine, mine, and refusing to share while a parent tries to conjole the child into releasing Just one toy to share. We've seen those toys, haven't we? Overflowing in little arms so no one else can get to them while the little friends stare in bewilderment at the child who holds on so tightly that he or she can't play either. And if one drops, say one little train, and a little friend happens to pick it up, The child who holds the toys goes even more berserk. Perhaps you even sent your own child to time out or carried a kicking and screaming child to a corner or a room trying to calm them down, telling them that they have to learn to share. I know I have. Many of us have experienced this situation with our children and witnessed other exasperated parents trying to deal with similar situations. Why does this happen? My first response, total depravity. Yes, we've been created as good in the likeness and image of God, but we also have this human, sinful, depraved nature Now, of course, there are also very, very good sociological explanations for this stage of childhood about a growing sense of identity and so on and so forth. Yet I contend as we grow up, we may learn to hide this tendency to protect what we think is ours and hold on to more than we need. But this doesn't go away as we grow up. This fear to hold on to what we see as ours And to grab more than what we need is alive and well. Our Exodus reading shows that the Holy One realizes this about us too. God hears the Israelites' murmurings, complaints, and their fears about survival and provides for them. God doesn't hold their murmurings and complaining against them. However, 
There are specific instructions on how to deal with God's blessings, the resources for their daily lives. Gather just what you need and no more. Our story says God tests the people, not in a sense of scoping out those who disobey in order to inflict punishment. Rather, God is preparing them to rely on God for their daily provisions. The Israelites are being taught to realize that when they live like this, when we live like this, there is a sense of peace and trust in God's abundance. We are called, just like the ancient Israelites, to have a greater faith in God's love for us and to realize that God does care about our daily lives and for the larger community. God cares about how we live, how much we take for ourselves, and how we share. This is a running theme through the Bible in the prophets like Amos, Micah, Isaiah, and Christ himself. We are called to care for the least of them and to speak up against leaders and the wealthy who ignore the needs of others. Over and over again, there is admonishment to care for the poor. When the Israelites harvest their crops, they are to leave enough for the poor to glean, for people to come by afterwards and gather up for themselves. There are even instructions for the year of Jubilee found in Leviticus and Numbers and other places, where every 50th year, land was to be returned to the ancestral owners and all Israelite slaves and servants were to be freed and their debts forgiven. A radical redistribution of wealth that the Israelites had a hard time of observing. The Bible doesn't seem to have anything against wealth per se, but it sure has a lot to say about how we use it and care for others. The Bible is also clear that God wants an abundant life for all. Where one, where everyone's needs are met both physically and spiritually. In this story, God's people are provided for and instructed to gather what they need and no more. Here we see our human tendency to quickly lose faith in God. Here we are reminded that a truly abundant life comes in living with a deeper faith in God and trusting in God's provision and love for humanity. Here we are reminded that when we take too much, there is spoilage not only for the individuals, but for others, the community. Taking more than one needs breaks down God's intent for community, for humanity. Exodus 16 is illustrative. It affirms that gifts from God, manna and quail, are graceful provisions. But with them comes a kind of Torah, God's law and guidance on how to live. And part of that lifestyle is to faithfully trust in God, to see us through, trust to see us through life and all of its challenges. Part of that lifestyle is to also help others realize God's love by gathering only what we need, and leaving enough for others. It's a tough and provocative message, one that we are each required to wrestle with, one I have been wrestling with for the past few weeks. 
Monday, September 5, Labor Day, was also the shoe giveaway for area Richmond children who were going back to school the next day. Over 3,000 pairs of shoes were given away in about eight hours. 3,000 pairs of shoes given away in eight hours. On that day, I thought I'd be nice to myself and signed up for the afternoon shift starting at 1 p.m. instead of arriving at 7 a.m. like I did the year before. I slept in, had a leisurely morning, and then decided what shoes to wear. Tennis shoes, hiking shoes, sandals, not one of my four pairs of black sandals. Slipping on nylon sandals, I left looking forward to help out in a bit slower pace than the morning shift. As I came close to 3rd Bethel AME, I noticed people still lined up for over the three or four blocks that I could see. So many people still in line. So much for my leisurely afternoon. And I soon learned that people had started lining up at 8 p.m. the night before on Sunday evening. I entered the church crowded, full of energy, and at times bedlam, as family after family waited to get to a turn to see shoes and try on shoes. I witnessed unbelievable joy, gratitude, and excitement as I helped fit numerous children and youth with shoes. At the same time, I fit shoes on kids wondering about their future and wondered how long they would stay innocent. I helped fit a six-year-old boy with a pair of athletic shoes whose young mother had been in line since 9 a.m., enduring heat and some rain. As we talked, I learned she, had, she worked at MCV and was going to night school. She excitedly told me that she had finished all her core classes and would soon be able to enter an RN program. She had a deep faith in God and was so grateful to get a beautiful pair of shoes Her son was ecstatic. When she left, she asked me to pray that she'd be able to find a daycare provider who could provide transportation for her son to his elementary school before and after school. School started the next day, and she'd probably have to take a day off from work to get this all settled. But she had faith. God had been with her so far. And see, she held up the pair of shoes. She had shoes for her son. I can't begin to say how many kids I helped find shoes. Some mothers knew their kids' sizes. Some had to figure it out. Some kids came in fairly decent shoes, some with holes in them. Some, too many, came in worn-out socks in the place of shoes. John Meeser fitted a boy with shoes who was wearing the pair he had got last year, the year before, at the shoe drive. Around 3 p.m., I started to encounter an obstacle. A mother waiting since 10 a.m. came in with three teenage children. She was exhausted from the heat. And as I tried to find shoes for her bright and well-mannered children, I could see and feel the despair coming over her. We couldn't find a pair for her eldest boy who attended an IB, International Baccalaureate Program, at a local high school. No size 14 shoes had come in. 
We were out of the shoe size for her son who attended Benford Middle School. And I spent a good deal of time searching for a pair of shoes for her daughter who had, tend, who had attended one of the top private schools here in, in Richmond and would be entering ninth grade at one of the specialized public high schools. As a mother sat, sat slumped in a chair, her minister, an African-American woman, came by and hugged her, saying she realized how difficult this was for her. Here was a new face of poverty we read about in the papers. Shoes in certain sizes were running low, and in other sizes we had run out. At 3.30 p.m., I frantically grabbed a few size 9 athletic shoes for a young man. We found one that fit, and he liked it. Yes! So I began to search for the matching shoe, only to discover another boy had it on and wanted the same pair. The other boy had tried the one, pair, the one shoe on first. We de- determined that the pair would go to him. We were able to find another pair, dress shoes, but not the gym shoes that were required. But he was still thankful. Manna. It can be a me- metaphor for so many things. And God's instruction to take only what we need plays out in so many, many different ways. I've been thinking a lot about this since Labor Day. At that shoe drive, in some ways it felt like we were putting band-aids on a system that needed a tourniquet. And in some ways we were. And I know a lot of us here left there with mixed feelings of joy and frustration. Yet when I met with some of the participating churches this week to review the shoe drive, I learned that 97% of the children coming through received shoes. That's good news. And at that meeting, I became very cognizant that for most of the churches that participated in that shoe drive, most of them had parishioners waiting in line for a pair of shoes that day that they ministered to. The shoe drive reminded me that poverty, systematic poverty, is messy. It's unstructured. It, it is raw And it oozes into all areas and aspects of one's life and surrounding environment. And it's virtually impossible to climb out of it on one's own. At that follow-up meeting, we all agreed that the event was an important event and vital mission. But it wasn't going to stop poverty. Stopping poverty had to be worked out at an entirely different level at levels that involved a growing solidarity with the poor, an awareness of the deeper issues of poverty, and in reclaiming God's prophetic voice. Our denomination's book of order and the new book of order keeps in this piece. It reiterates the gospel message when addressing themes of our Reformed tradition. It states that we are to embrace a faithful stewardship, a lifestyle that shuns an ostentatious display of wealth and possessions, a life that seeks to properly use the gifts of God's creation. Additionally, we are to recognize the human tendency towards idolatry and tyranny, which in turn calls us to work for the transformation of society by seeking justice and living in obedience to God's word. 
tough stuff, heavy stuff, exciting stuff, transformational stuff. So how do we do this? Well, each of us, as I've said, has to wrestle with this in our own lives. We also have to wrestle with it as a congregation. Last year, at an open format for one of our mission council meetings, we repeatedly heard the suggestion, the call for second, to become involved in advocacy work. Service work and direct mission work are important, but just as important is the prophetic work of advocating and speaking out for changes that will help overcome the systems of poverty and injustice. And this is beginning to happen. We now have a new advocacy committee that falls under the mission committee. This committee has moved us forward in becoming part of RISC, Richmonders involved to strengthen our community. Through this, we will join other area congregations in learning how to advocate for changes in our community. There will be opportunities also to attend a social justice university and other events all gathered at getting people to stand together in unity as a strong voice for God's mercy. Keep your eyes and ears open for these opportunities. Read Second Press, Second Notice, and the Bulletin. I left that shoe drive with so many mixed emotions, and I was exhausted, haunted, and overcome with a sense that as one person, I couldn't change anything. But that's not true, because together as God's people, we can and we are called to make a difference. And in the week following that shoe drive, some very exciting opportunities for advocacy began to open up in that new committee for our congregation to bring about God's reign and the way of Christ for our community. Gather just what you need. May we live into this. May it be so. Amen. My prayer of commitment is a poem written by John Vandelaar of South Africa. Listen to this poem and pray with me. How did it happen, God? How did we become to believe in scarcity, in not enough to go around, in you got to look out for yourself? How did we miss the plenty bursting out around us? How did we fall for the deception that what we grasp in our hands would ever be enough? How did we grow so blind and so foolish that we would allow so much beauty in life, joy and laughter, sharing in love to pass by unnoticed? How poor we have become, how poor we have made others, simply because we forgot our infinite, overflowing abundance, because we allowed ourselves to think that sharing and giving leaves us with less because we nurtured appetites that are never satisfied unless they have far more than is needed, thinking our gluttony would silence our fear. Forgive us and teach us about your generosity again. Remind us that you are able and willing to do far more than we can imagine and open our eyes to the plenty we enjoy, the plenty we can share, and all the plentiful goodness in our world that cannot be owned 
but can be enjoyed by all. Amen.